0: Good afternoon. Before we begin to look into God's Word, let's go to Him in prayer and ask for Him to bless us with His Word. Heavenly Father, You spoke through the prophet Isaiah, saying, A voice says, Cry, and I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever." Lord, we pray that You would cause Your Word to breathe life into us, Lord. In Christ's sweet name we pray, amen. Gerald Sitzer is a Christian author who has written about one important evening in his life, when he was driving his whole family in a van, and um, they came around a corner. A car was coming in the opposite lane very fast, driven by a drunk driver, and that car swerved over and hit their family's van head on. He writes at the very beginning about the moments after that happened. I remember those first moments after the accident as if everything was happening in slow motion. They are frozen into my memory with a terrible vividness. After recovering my breath, I turned around to survey the damage. The scene was chaotic. I remember the look of terror on the faces of my children and the feeling of horror that swept over me when I saw the unconscious and broken bodies of Linda, my four-year-old daughter, Diana Jane, and my mother. I remember getting my other three children out of the van through my door, the only one that would open. I remember taking pulses, doing mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, trying to save the dying and calm the living. I remember the feeling of panic that struck my soul as I watched Linda, my mother, and Diana Jane all die before my eyes. I remember the pandemonium that followed, people gawking, lights flashing from emergency vehicles, a helicopter whirring overhead, cars lining up, medical experts doing what they could to help. And I remember the realization sweeping over me that I would soon plunge into a darkness from which I might never again emerge as a sane, normal, believing man. Oddly enough, the book that Gerald Sitzer has written about that experience in his life and what followed is called A Grace Disguised. It's a book about how Gerald Sitzer discovered The grace of God, and understood it and experienced it in ways that he never had and never could prior to experiencing these horrible, horrible event. This horrible, horrible event in his life. The book of Ruth, which we are stepping into this afternoon, is a little book that's only made up of four chapters, and it's tucked right between Judges and First Samuel. It's very easy to miss, but if you find it and you invest yourself in it, it's like finding a brilliant diamond in the most unexpected place. The sermon this afternoon has three points to it. This is the outline, and if you're taking notes, this might help you to follow along. The first is hard providences. The second point is costly choices. And the third point is hidden hopes, hard providences, costly choices, and hidden hopes. We're going to be reading through the book of Ruth just in sections, three sections that follow the three points of the sermon, and we'll read those one at a time as we go. We're going to begin with the first 7 verses. So turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ruth. It's in the Old Testament. It's after the book of Judges and before 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. So if you'll find that in your Bible, we're beginning of course in chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1, follow along with me. Verses 1 through 7. "'In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there.' But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Mahlon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. And so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. The first point this afternoon for these first seven verses is hard providences. When this story opens up, we learn that the time that it's taking place is when the judges of Israel ruled. Now, after God rescued his people from Egyptian slavery through the leadership of Moses, and then Israel conquered almost all of the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, Israel entered into a dark and disobedient time. The last verse of the book of Judges sums it up, really. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And what everyone wanted to do was sin. Wickedness was everywhere. Violence, family disorder, sexual sin of all different kinds was common. Now, in addition, We learn in these first few verses that there was a famine in the land, and to say that there was a famine in God's promised land tells us more than just that it hadn't rained enough. It tells us that the Lord's hand was acting in judgment against Israel. God had promised that if the Israelites obeyed Him and they didn't go and worship the gods of the people that surrounded them, He would bless them with crops. He would bless them with prosperity. But if they disobeyed and they did worship those other gods, he would strike their land with famine and plagues. Now, our narrator zeroes in on one man from Bethlehem and his wife and his two sons. Now, Bethlehem means house of bread. But of course, now there's no bread for anyone, even in the house of bread. And so, they pick up the whole family and they leave to find food in the land of Moab. Moab is not particularly friendly territory to Israelites. The Moabites are descended from the incestuous relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter and that's told in the book of Genesis. It was the Moabite women who seduced the men of Israel during the wanderings in the wilderness, which resulted in the Lord striking down thousands of Israelites. The king of Moab tried to put curses on the Israelites during those same wilderness wanderings. And the Moabites' primary god was Chemosh. Chemosh demanded child sacrifice of anyone who worshiped him. On the face of things, this seems like a desperate move for this family from Bethlehem, and it's a move into spiritually dangerous territory. Next we learn their names, Elimelech, which means my god is king, Naomi and their two sons Mahlon and Chilion. And the famine forced move to Moab must have been difficult enough, but then Elimelech dies. The sons take Moabite wives in Orpah and Ruth, which was a questionable step on their part given God's commands against intermarrying with other nations. Ten years go by with no children born to the women, and then the two sons die as well. Three women, all widowed, with no men in their lives for protection and provision. This isn't 2021, where women can go into any field of study or any vocation they want to. No, they were living in a society where women without a father or a brother or a husband were extremely vulnerable. What was a desperate situation in verse 1 has now become a hopeless situation by the end of verse 5. And by the end of this chapter, Naomi will say that she went away from Bethlehem full, and she returned empty. Already the emptiness is there. Many of you know what it's like to feel empty, to feel like good things have been taken from you, to feel like there's no gain and only loss. We feel that emptiness. When a job and a move doesn't turn out like we'd planned, everything falls apart. When there's maybe a debt in the family or a family obligation that saps the savings that we were depending on, or maybe it just simply saps all of our time and our emotional energy. We feel that emptiness when a loved one dies or perhaps when a child dies or maybe when there's been no child. My wife Joanne's family experienced the loss of her father to cancer one Christmas, and then a year later her sister and young nephew died in a terrible car accident, much like what's described in this book. And then later a young nephew died in a tragic accident as well. Losses leave us empty. They come, of course, because we live in a world broken down and burdened by sin. What has happened to Naomi and her daughters-in-law are hard providences of God. Providence is another one of those words like Trinity. You can't find it in the Bible. It's a, a theological word, and it means that God is in control of everything, everywhere. He's guiding His creation and His creatures. Not just sometimes, no, God is guiding everyone all the time. Not just those who believe in Him, everyone, even those who disbelieve. God is involved in everything, everywhere, and you can find hundreds if not thousands of verses that prove the theological concept of God's providence. He gives rain, He takes rain, He gives life, He takes life. He even governs something as insignificant as the roll of a dice or the rise of a king. The Lord governs everything. It says in Ephesians 1, 11, that He works all things according to the counsel of His will. Now, Scripture teaches us that God is in control even in the midst of losses. Nothing happens to us apart from God's guiding hand, even the hard things. You see, when sin entered the world, God didn't give up His control in the world. No, He continued to be in control. Yet, it's difficult for us to balance the other biblical truth that we know that God is entirely good. God is entirely good, even when there's loss and pain and death that come to us. The Lord uses hard providences to draw us to Himself and teach us deep truths about ourselves and about Himself if we'll listen and we'll learn. Are you listening to what the Lord wants to teach you in the midst of hard providences? Naomi is empty and seemingly without hope when she hears that the Lord has visited His people back in Israel by blessing them with food. The rain must have begun falling, the food must be growing in the fields, which is all evidence that... People have repented and cried out to the Lord. He's answering their prayers. And so Naomi sets out with her daughters-in-law and nothing else to return to God's land of promise. But hard providences often also bring us face-to-face with costly choices. And that's what we see in verses 8 through 18. Costly choices. Follow along as I read beginning in verse 8, "'But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, "'Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of their husband.' Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, "'No, we will return with you to your people.'" "'that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me.' And then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, "'See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law.' But Ruth said, "'Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge.'" Your people will be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. These verses describe costly choices. As their way, on their way, back... To Judah, Naomi urges Orpah and Ruth to return to Moab and to their families there. Of course, she knows that their best chances of finding a new husband are actually back in Moab. Uh, who is going to marry two Moabite widows in Israel? And Naomi further implies that they were both women of good character. She hopes that the Lord, Israel's God, will be kind to them just as they were kind. To their husbands and to her. And so there's weeping and there's tender kisses goodbye, but they refuse. Orpah and Ruth say that they want to make the journey. They want to stand by Naomi. But again, she presses them to turn back to Moab. And this time, she reasons that there's no hope of her having sons this late in life who could marry them. Of course, Naomi's referring to an Old Testament Israelite law that required a brother to marry his own brother's widow if the brother died, also that the widow could bear children and carry on the family name. It's a strange law for us to understand, but it was there to ensure that widows were not cut out of the family inheritance. She also says that she knows it was the Lord who has brought these terrible losses into her life. She says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me, in verse 13. But the tension and the sorrow of the situation is only increasing, Orpah makes her choice. She kisses her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth refuses to go. Naomi tries one more time to persuade Ruth to return with Orpah to Moab. Look there at verse 15. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her God's return after your sister-in-law. And now we learn something very, very important about Ruth. Where does her loyalty lie? Look at verses 16 and 17 again. But Ruth said, clear because she has committed herself to Naomi's God, the Lord, the only true God, the God of Israel, in fact, the God of the whole earth. Not Chemosh or any other Moabite god or goddesses. You see, living with this Israelite family Ruth has learned about their faithful God. He is the Lord who rescued the Israelites from Egyptian slavery and told them as they stood before Him on the mountain in Exodus 19, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples." for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is the faithful God who Moses promised to Israel in the book of Deuteronomy saying, He will never leave you or forsake you. This Moabite woman has chosen to trust in the one true God of Israel. And because of her loyalty to Him, she's going to be loyal to to Naomi and her people. It might make more worldly sense that her best chances for life are back in Moab, but she's come to trust in the one God who made the whole world and rules it. She's made her choice to cling to Him, and so she's going to cling to Naomi. The Lord of Israel is the Lord of the whole world. It doesn't matter whether your family, is from this country or that country, from this religion or that religion. Or maybe that your family has no religion in its background in particular. The Lord of the whole earth deserves your trust and faith. Ruth is giving up her heritage to follow the Lord. Everyone gives up something to follow the Lord. Everyone gives up something to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly, but the cost is worth it. You may lose your family. You might be persecuted and rejected. Your own mother and father might reject you and hate you even. But Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. He's the one you owe your life to, and He will never leave you or forsake you, no matter what background you come from. Anyone can follow the Lord Jesus Christ, and everyone should. If you're not a Christian, have you considered placing your trust in Him? I invite you to do that today. Trust in the Lord Jesus. It's going to be costly, I promise you, but it will be worth it. It's helpful to know that the name Ruth means friend or companion. Ruth is the model of loyal friendship here. Maybe you're concerned about gaining friends right now in your life. That's not a bad desire. Deep, lasting friendships are what we were designed to experience in life. But what we see in Ruth is more about being a friend than getting friends. Naomi was urging her to leave and go home, but Ruth refused. If you want to have friends, the most important step for you is to be a friend, to be faithful to pursue others in relationship, friendship, deep meaning. Make the regular calls to see how others are doing. Ask the deeper questions to learn how better to pray for others and serve them, to know them more deeply. Orient your life around those that you want to be friends to. There's a reason why Ruth promises, where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Just to be surrounded by people, simply, isn't the essence of good friendship. Proverbs 18.24 says, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now, Naomi could see that Ruth had made the hard choice and wouldn't be dissuaded from staying with her, and so she stopped trying to convince her. But there's no words of thanks, there's no words of rejoicing that Ruth would come with her. It seems her outlook on the future is so bitter that she fails to see that gracious gift that God has given her in faithful Ruth. Any hope that there is peeking through the dark clouds for Naomi is hidden from her. She can't see it. Now, let's continue reading, beginning in verse 19 to the end of the chapter. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest." The third point this afternoon is hidden hopes, hidden hopes. When the two women arrive in Bethlehem, Naomi's hometown, it causes a stir. The women of the town are stunned that Naomi is back. Is this Naomi, they ask. Perhaps the losses and the pain that she's experienced in life had changed her. She probably has a lot more gray hair, a lot more wrinkles, and of course there's no menfolk with her. Naomi's outlook on life is on full display when she tells them not to call her Naomi anymore. Naomi means pleasant or sweet. Instead, she wants to be called Mara, which means bitter. All of her hardships she attributes to the Lord, and Naomi is right. God's hand has been sovereign in her life. Nothing came into her life that God didn't ordain. And so, in verses 20 and 21, she says, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. The Lord has brought me back empty, she says. She goes on to say, He's testified against me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Naomi's theology is correct, but Naomi's theology is incomplete. There's more to God who providentially brings suffering into our lives. He's also the God of hope and salvation, a God who blesses even more than He curses. John Piper says it succinctly in his book about Ruth titled, A Sweet and Bitter Providence. He says, "'Seeing is a precious gift, and bitterness is a powerful blindness.'" Naomi's bitterness has blinded her to the hope that the Lord is putting in her life. For one, there's that last phrase in the last verse in the chapter. Look there at verse 22, the last sentence. It says, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The Lord takes away, but the Lord is about to give, to give plentiful food, plentiful bread in the house of bread. There's hope in Bethlehem's fields, but Naomi can't see it yet. But the even greater hope is in the forgotten woman who's by her side, Ruth. There's no reference to Ruth by Naomi here or the women in these last verses. It's as if Ruth is invisible. And yet, what a gift Ruth is. What a gift she is to Naomi. But Naomi can't see it yet. Has the bitter providences in your life blinded you to the blessings that God has given you? Have you acknowledged that God is indeed sovereign in the pain and loss, but forgotten that He redeems and He restores? Do you trust in His goodness enough to praise Him even in the pain? So look for the lessons and the hidden hopes that He's inserting into your life. There's a famous hymn by William Cowper titled, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. One of the verses says, "'Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and break in blessings on your head. His purposes shall ripen fast, unfolding every hour.' The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower." The Lord of hard providences is also the Lord of hidden hopes. The Lord who takes a husband and sons is also the Lord who gives a Ruth. If Naomi could only recognize what the Lord has given her in Ruth. Ruth is the foreigner who's pledged her allegiance to the Lord of Israel. She's promised to go where Naomi goes and die where Naomi dies. Ruth is the biggest, most surprising bright spot in this whole chapter. She is how the Lord is working to bless Naomi. And in her, we see how the Lord will eventually bless all the peoples of the earth. You see, every part of Scripture is a part of the grand narrative of Scripture which leads us to the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we look in this very first chapter of the book of Ruth, it's in Ruth that we see the faithful friend that Jesus Christ is to all who turn to Him in faith. Just like Ruth has left her homeland to serve Naomi, Jesus Christ left the glories of His Father and heaven. And he took on flesh and blood to experience the temptations and the trials and the pain that we've known. And yet, where we've chosen disobedience, he always chose obedience to the Father. Where we chose sin, he chose righteousness. Just like Ruth pledged to die where Naomi would die, Christ has even tasted death for us. Hebrews 2. 14 and 15 say, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Christ died to atone for our sins so that our death might not be the doorway into eternal death, but be the doorway into eternal life. Christ rose again that we might rise with Him. This Christ is the most faithful friend that we all long for, the one who will never leave us or forsake us. Have you trusted in Christ? Have you abandoned the gods of your people and your family or your country and placed your trust in the God of the whole world? I'm inviting you to do that today. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do the hard providences of life look large and threatening and Christ seems small and powerless? Look again. Look with the eyes of faith on Christ. If you've trusted in Christ, then Jesus is plotting and planning for your good even in the midst of hardship and hurt. He's already died and risen again so that you and I might have the most glorious, eternal future guaranteed and secured by His precious blood. Did you catch that verse in that passage of Romans 8 that Rachel read for us earlier, that incredible passage towards the end of Romans 8? There's that one verse. Of course, every single verse in that passage is amazing, but verse 32 stands out. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God the Father gave us his son. Why would he hold anything good back from you and I? In this life, in this life, we live in a world of sin and loss. But God is with us, and Jesus Christ doesn't shield us from experiencing those things, those hard things in this life, but He works in such amazing ways in the midst of all this sin and loss that we might know His grace now and experience His glory later. The book of Judges that comes right before Ruth is filled with stories of increasing sin and moral chaos. The last story in chapters 19, 20, and 21 is a horrible, horrible story about a mistress from Bethlehem who is viciously assaulted by a gang of Israelite men. She's murdered and chopped up into pieces, and it leads to a terrible war between the tribes of Israel. And as you finish the book of Judges with this horrible, sinking feeling, and turn the page from that horrific story and begin the book of Ruth, you find that it begins and takes place mainly in Bethlehem of Judah, the same place. And so it seems that the Lord has in store a redeeming story about a woman living in Bethlehem where there is the worst sin, the Lord is revealing his greatest grace. Of course, many of you know that Ruth becomes the surprising great-grandmother of King David. And Ruth is one of the few women mentioned by name in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew. God is plotting to show grace to His sinful and wayward people. God is planning to show grace to you, do you have the eyes of faith to see it? The message of chapter 1 in Ruth for us is that like Ruth was for Naomi, the Lord Jesus is our great faithful friend in dark times. He's the hidden hope now revealed in the gospel for people living with the hard providences of a sinful world. Let's go to Him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise You that You didn't stand aloof from this world racked by sin and pain and death, but in fact, You entered it. You entered it in the man Jesus Christ who took on flesh, emptying Himself of all that was rightfully His, and He obeyed You even to the point of death on the cross, so that we might know Your grace, know Your goodness, and know eternal blessings through Him. Lord, we praise You for the Lord Jesus and the gospel that He gives us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.